Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for being here. This is Lost Cast 137 and I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. Today I'm mostly going to ask you questions. I'm going to be like interviewing you almost. It's going to be a Jeff show. with the developer. Sure. Because <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you, you've you been up to lots of different cool things and uh, I've been doing nothing, apparently. I'm carrying this company. <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? <laughs> uh, JS13K Unity stream yesterday. I'm, I actually am going to have an art tip like I've been having for a couple weeks now with a uh, really positive response. Great to see that on the interwebs. Uh, thank you very much. You have a Unity tip and then uh, we're going to talk about this article we mentioned last episode, which is, uh, what's this thing called? Evaluating. evaluating game mechanics for depth yes look yeah. at that continuity we are on top of it that's right yes only here on lost cast or something, <laughs> or something. <laughs> uh First, though, I want to talk about a little bit about the survey. Getting pretty good responses to the survey. Thanks a lot for taking it. And if you haven't yet, do it. Uh, it's much appreciated, and it really helps us out uh, for knowing what kind of content to make and what you guys like when you're available, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes, and uh, I'm going to read uh, one comment here that I thought was was really, really touches the heart. Oh, it's so um. sweet. Uh, there's a bunch of really great comments, and there's a section at the end where you can write whatever you want, and we're going to read... Um, everything that's not uh in book form <laughs> and uh is also you know positive <laughs> i see uh but uh here's one that i like a lot i'm just gonna read this real quick i just want to say that you guys are part of my of most of my days i've been working on making my own games for about three years as a hobby but i basically look up to you both as the f- fruition of my aspirations i love you guys dialogue tutorials tips streams and games i appreciate all that you put out and we'll be backing you come a wizard lizard 2's kickstarter isn't that Aww, nice? That's so thank sweet. You. Yeah, yeah, that is nice. Thanks for that wonderful comment. Uh, another one of my favorites. Day. Yeah, doesn't it? Just like adds a bounce to your step, you know? Um, another one of my favorite comments right here just says, cats, all caps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's a treasure trove in here. Uh, but we'll continue to uh, keep the survey open for at least, some, I'm thinking maybe two more episodes, probably by the time we launch the Kickstarter on September 1st. So keep your wallets ready. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) we'll probably close it down then and then uh, at some point after that we'll kind of compile the data and talk a little bit about um all the goodness inside we should do uh didn't we do like a cast where we like went through and read all the great comments people wrote about us we're so narcissistic uh (laughs) but uh, yeah (laughs) but part of it also like that was uh i think we called it love cast and it was uh that one was a more targeted survey because it was like a survey for Lost Cast listeners, which is Question kind of... number one. How much do you love us? <laughs> right. <laughs> how big of a hug would you give us? <laughs> um, but, you know, it was kind of nice because we could kind of, you know, put the spotlight back to the listeners and you could see uh, what the listeners like, what the listeners want to hear about, and then what listeners have to say. And there is an element of that to this survey, even though it's more geared towards the video content that uh, you've been making every week and we hope to eventually start cranking out even more of. So, right. It's well, really about trying to make the content... That people want to see yeah exactly and yeah. whatever like, we have our own ideas and there's any time of day we could do it and all this jazz but it's like it's hard to to iron down when it should be like what's most optimal what do people actually you know want to want to see or hear or whatnot yep um so you sir have been working on js13k which is a competition it's a web games pretty much needs to be using web tech and you've got to keep your entire project below 13 kilobytes Yes. Pretty interesting. Is this a yearly thing? 
It is a yearly thing. I think it started in 2012. That sounds right. Um, so I think this is the fourth year, but you know, I could be wrong. This came after JS1K, right? Um, I don't know. I think so. For some reason. I don't know why. They're a little bit different, though. JS1K... 12, 12K different, right? <laughs> is this right? They're about 12K difference. <laughs> uh, JS1K, I think, is, doesn't allow zipping, if I recall. But I, I don't quote wow. me on that. No, I think you're right. I think it's just like byte for byte. Yeah, it's like 1K of, you know, minified and mangled JavaScript, but... Barely looks recognizable, like, not parsable to humans by the time those hackers are done with it, right? Yeah, there's a lot more crazy optimizations that you have to do for 1K of JavaScript. Have to But anyways, um, this kind of got on my radar again. I had seen it a couple years back, and I always thought it was kind of cool. But the guy that runs it actually reached out to us and... uh, asked us to sponsor some of the prizes uh, because we have an HTML5 game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we threw a handful of a Wizard's Lizard Steam keys his way. Um, and But there's a bunch of other great prizes too, um, all donated by a lot of people in the HTML5 industry. Uh, you've got some Construct 2 licenses, some Play Canvas licenses. Uh, I think there's some Phaser stuff. Um, there's Elliot Quest game. There's a couple other HTML5 games up there. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff you could win. Um, apparently he's given out t-shirts for all entries Ooh! and uh, you also get a USB pen drive with all the games on it. Remember when we used to get free t-shirts all the time working yeah. in Silicon Valley as web developers? Now we don't get any free t-shirts. I know I have to buy my own shirts. What is this? Ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, you know, that's how I kind of, um, you know, came across JS13K again. And uh, we were actually talking, you and I, um, maybe about a week or two ago. <clears throat> no, we weren't. We yeah, never, we never do that, talk. <laughs> especially not on a weekly basis. No, <laughs> it's just ludicrous. Crazy. Uh, we were talking about how uh, I had this itch to work on like Canvas rendering in HTML5 again. Yeah, which is like, what? Because you've yeah. been harking on like, yeah, <laughs> ditch HTML5, ditch, ditch doing it yourself. Right. No, <laughs> Use it's other true. people's tools. <laughs> I, I absolutely believe that still. Uh, Liar. That, that being said, um, it's hard not to want to fill around with stuff when um, there's a couple things going on. One is that as I use Unity more, um, I start to assimilate some of their ideas about how games can be architected. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you use another engine, this is actually a great argument for using new engines and stuff just to try them out is because you're going to be exposed to different ways of doing things. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, I think when you and I were working at Game Closure, you know, uh, we actually learned a lot about game development by just being exposed to a bunch of other people and how they developed games, you know. And so we kind of took that information and we assimilated it into our own understanding of game programming. Yeah. Um, and so that's happened with me uh, in Unity as well. You know, I, I look at how they structure um, their systems, their entities, their components. And uh, it kind of, you know, gives me ideas about how I would go about, you know, making essentially a better version of our old game engine, Jin, uh, in HTML5. Nice. Um, because I do love JavaScript, you know. Yeah. It is, it's a fun language to work in. And, you know, there are obviously a lot of problems. Um, but, you know, as with anything. Uh, but specifically for this uh, competition, it kind of hit the sweet spot because one, I had this itch. Two, uh, a competition where you can play the game directly on the web is a great place to use HTML5. <laughs> obviously. And 
obviously. And it's also competition about JavaScript, so it makes sense. Yep. But I mean, really for any competition, right? Like Ludum Dare or all that stuff. Like, I think that anytime you're going to have people voting and playing on your game, uh, f- targeting the web is a good idea. Yeah, we've talked about that uh, before. And there's also this just rapid prototyping elements right right? because like i mean you know maybe somebody else could move faster in udk or something but for us javascript's kind of second nature so we can crank stuff out faster today in gin than we can uh, in almost anything else even though the final result won't meet like our business needs you know with steam and hopefully you know consoles and that kind of thing eventually it's still really good for just like banging out a quick like game jam type game right yeah exactly um and so i had this itch to do some canvas based stuff and um, the fact that there's this 13k limit is actually a great limitation for me because I don't want to work on uh, a JavaScript canvas engine that's going to be, <laughs> you know, this huge scoped project. Like I don't want it to compete with Phaser. I don't want to compete with Impact. Like that's not what I want to do with my time. Obviously, you know. You don't want to implement Pixie? No. Come on. <laughs> Fun times. Uh, and so it was like a great little, you know kind of a side project that i can tinker around with but it's got a very small scope yeah uh and so that kind of you know keeps me in check i don't go off the rails with trying to make everything to everybody right (laughs) kind of product yeah um so i started working on a little 2d engine i'm calling ocelot yes Uh, ocelot is a super cute wild cat from africa and unlike Jin, which we've talked about in probably over 100 episodes of this podcast, Ocelot is actually on GitHub now. It is, yes. So I'll put uh, a link uh, in the show notes, and you can see Jeff's latest and greatest JavaScript. Um, and this, you know, hopefully will satisfy people that have been interested in how Jin works, because a lot of the way that Jin did things are going to be, you know, coming through in this little micro framework. Yeah. Um, but also updated to be, you know... Uh, including some of my other newer learnings. Does this Ocelot project, uh, was it trying to be as you know small as possible so that you could use it with JS13K, or is this something else? Uh, and it's supposed to be as small as possible, yeah. Okay, so were you preserving bytes, or were you just going to let the uh, you know compressor deal with that? So I'm letting the compressor deal with it mostly. Um, I keep you know tabs on how big it's getting, and um, it's probably in the neighborhood of like 3K-ish G-zipped. Or That's good that you're using zipped. tabs. Yes. <laughs> you like that? Did you like that joke? I did. I'm sure three or four people got it. I, it took me a second to actually get it. But you're yes. very funny. <laughs> All right. Pat myself in the back. Uh, Sorry. Anywho. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, also, a tab character is only one character, whereas if you're using space characters, it could be, you know, upwards of four characters, eight characters. Oh. You plus know. plus for tabs. There we go. I Always mean, go with tabs, kids. I think, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. Anyways, uh, so I've been kind of tinkering on that on the weekends, and uh, I'm probably going to submit a game to JS13K and uh, use that little engine. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in it, check it out on GitHub, and um, you know, feel free to, to look it over. Is your use game it, use it. on GitHub as well, or is that still private times? Uh, no, it's on GitHub as well. I have oh, it, wow. uh, there's a repo called JS13K-2015 on my GitHub profile. I will put links to these in the show notes. There's not a lot of documentation around how to get it running. Uh, <laughs> it uses Browserify, which is a um, NPM package that basically takes node style requires and bundles them up into a package. No uh, help? No readme? Nothing? No, no. Come nothing. on! <laughs> <laughs> it's like I you will, spend I your time effectively or something. Yeah. 
maybe. <laughs> uh, that's, that's debatable. Yeah. Well, maybe when you're done, you'll come back and be like, yeah. here, do this, and get out of here. Anyways, another great thing about JS13K is it's a month-long competition. So uh, that also appeals to me because, you know, it's small in scope, and you have a month to tinker with it, and, you know, it's not like you're jamming for 72 hours without sleep, which is yeah. not really my style. I mean, I appreciate it, and I think that it's cool, uh, but that kind of a competition rarely fits into my life these days. Yeah, we've we've done it before, uh, but yeah, it takes a toll on you, and it's kind of like romantic to think about, right? You like we just take two days, and we pump out a game, and you feel great about it, and then you get right back to work, and like that's not how it goes, you know. When you're when you crunch for you know forty eight hours, seventy two hours straight, you need a break, and like your mind is usually not going to be ready to you know right. <clears throat> start the marathon back up again, so. It might only, quote, only take away two or three days, but, like, that can turn into a week. So these jams, you know, as uh, as enticing as they are, they can often be more of a commitment than our deadlines will allow. Right. And this is a nice setup because I can kind of tinker with this a few hours a week and, you know, make some kind of steady incremental progress uh, yeah. in between times where I'm, like, demotivated with whatever else I'm working on or just need a break or whatever. Yeah. We've talked before about uh, we want to start taking something like Fridays and those are like now flex days when we can work on side projects or do whatever we want. Kind of like, uh, I think it was championed by Google. You know, they had this, oh, 20% free time or, you know, it turned out to be not always true <laughs> for everyone at the company. Right. Uh, but it certainly sounds appealing to us, but we haven't really stuck with that. I think I think one big reason for that is because we've been sprinting, you know, for the a Wizard Lizard 2 Kickstarter, it's like two months later than we wanted to launch at this point. So we just feel really behind. So the idea of, you know, putting even more on our plates is just like, oh, we're just, we're just exhausted. Like we can barely handle what we have. And then in addition, all of our ideas for side projects, they're cool and they're exciting and stuff, but they're really big. Like even though they're much, much smaller than AWL 2, they're still big, like months long, especially for only doing it uh you know, one day a week. So it's been kind of an exhausting just thinking about it. But that's what yeah. I like about JS13K is that it's, you know, like you were saying, kind of bite-sized or yep. at least more bite-sized. And we kind of talked about uh, you're going to jump in and maybe help me with some art. Yeah, maybe. Oh, maybe. Okay. No, well, I'll to totally do it. I just I don't something. know. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pay up. <laughs> um, I don't know what the, like, what's the state of your, of your graphic. Because like, we were looking at it the other day and there is not a lot of wiggle room. You got to have like tiny little pixel art. Yeah, no, it's not ready for you yet, but I mean, just, you know, later on. Cool. How how far along is it? Like, what's what's the game like right now? Well, I've been kind of just putting in the core features to the engine. Um, the game actually works. It's kind of like a little roguelike game. Uh, you can move around. It has collision. There's monsters. There's AI. There's, like, tweening. There's lighting. Uh, wow. So it's actually pretty far along, but, you know, I need to do a little bit more work on the actual game mechanics. That sounds really far along. Lighting, even. Yeah. Wow. Fancy. That's all baked into Ocelot. And there's a theme for this contest as well, yes? Uh, it's reversed. Reversed. That could yeah. be fun. Yeah. So we, we uh, kind of, you and I like kicked around some ideas the other day, and I think we have some interesting stuff. We won't uh, reveal it because that part is secret, maybe. Although was, since it's open source, maybe w- not so secret. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> secret well, on GitHub? I haven't actually implemented that yet into yeah. the repo, so. I see, I see. Yeah. Was Reversi the first game that you ever made, like... Professionally? Uh, well, uh, not professionally, but like on the job, I guess. Yeah. Nice. So, well, when you and I were hired at Game Closure, I would consider that my first professional game. I think, well, 
Yeah. I mean, we had Onslaught Arena before that, and if nothing else, it was That's a great true. portfolio piece. And it was making money, and it was, in a way, supported by Google. Like, it was legitimate professional offering, but it wasn't, like... Uh, actually, that's I, I true because when we got to Game Closure, we actually re-released a version of Onslaught on iPad as well. Yeah, yeah, and that was legit. Like we had, we talked about that in the podcast. We had like a month or so to kind of add new features and uh, make it slightly less crappy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually, directly after that, the very next game I worked on was Reversey. Nice. Was a mobile version of Reversey in HTML5. When I think of a reversed as a theme, it's it's hard not to be like reversed, Reversey, easy. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to stay away from that because, you know, basically the first two things I thought of when I heard that theme were reversey and reverse to gravity platform. Yeah, <laughs> so like V... Yeah, V, 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 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then uh, what was the other thing? Oh, Lunchbug is based on reversey as well. It is, yeah. It, it kind of doesn't feel like reversey because you're not actually... Um, like, turning... I mean, you are turning pieces. You're not reversing them back and forth. Right. You're kind of like uh, leveling them up and then removing them from the board. Uh, basically, Lunchbug was kind of a mishmash of Reversey meets Triple Town. Right. Uh, because I really like, you know, Triple Town has this board clearing mechanic. And so the way that it works is that the better and more efficient you are at clearing the board, you know, the longer your game can go on. And if you fill up the board, the game is over. Yeah. Um, in a game like Reversey, you know, it's a very finite you know, every turn a piece gets added to the board and no pieces ever get removed. So the game length is very static anyways <laughs> uh yeah reversey so anyways um that's js 13k it's pretty cool you guys should check it out um enter it if you want to or don't well i'm looking forward to uh your game sir yeah and maybe at some point i'll make it prettier uh i'll just put my face in it <laughs> my pretty face little matte icons <laughs> floating around everywhere right. i don't know can you draw a picture of your face in eight by eight pixels no <laughs> I can't draw my my own face in any resolution. I've tried. That's, okay, faces well, are hard. They are. So you streamed yesterday. I did. How'd that go? Uh, it went really well, actually. I started out not knowing what I was going to work on. I told you what to work on. I gave it to you on a silver platter. I know, but <laughs> I don't trust you. <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> no one does. Anyways, I ended up working on a uh, a little bit of kickstarter video cinematic stuff yeah so in addition to you know the game mechanics and stuff that we're working on we're also uh, obviously working on the kickstarter video and so uh, i use the game engine to basically render scenes cinematic scenes with the characters like raga and the wizard or bosses or whatever just to kind of get some uh, good footage for kickstarter video so i worked on that and the particular scene i was working on was raga sleeping in the house and the wizard kind of pops up. And so I was working on a lot of polish effects like tweening and lighting and particle effects and stuff like that. So The events and whatnot as well? Uh, yes. Well, you know, the events in the sense that like you want the script to kind of follow like these beats. Yeah. Like, okay, he's sleeping. And then in two seconds, the wizard pops in and then something else happens. You know, it's kind of got this thing happens next thing happens next thing happens that's all uh that's all really good to have and sometimes very difficult to code it's actually pretty easy in unity the way i do it is i just have a invisible game object uh, that has just a script attached to it and the script just invokes functions on some kind of a timer it's it's really like set timeout unity has this uh function called invoke 
that pretty much functions exactly like set timeout. You say invoke function name in two seconds, and it'll do it in two seconds. That sounds like how Jen did it and how it works in a wizard's lizard, because like the intro scene where you walk into the room and you talk to the wizard and you're like, you know, don't don't summon death, you jerk, and then he does it anyway or whatever. That's all like there's an invisible game object in the room, right? And it's got a script attached to it, and the script just like looks for objects and attaches events and stuff. Right, just manipulates them. It's kind of got like this invisible hand thing going on. Yeah. Or you have all these pieces in the scene, and then you've got this invisible controller that just kind of manipulates it. It's like a puppeteer. Now I have invisible touch in my head. Thanks a lot. I want to shout out to uh, Anton, known as Salmon Moose, in the chat. He uh, is very helpful, always giving me great Unity tips, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, and active on Twitter and stuff. That's great to, great to see. Much appreciated. He's also got some YouTube videos up on his channel on YouTube that are pretty helpful, too. Uh, there's one about uh, curves and tweening in Unity, uh, which is kind of nice. If so, I can find that, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I can probably ping it to you. Excellent. So yeah, the Unity stream went really well. I forgot to uh, export last week's <laughs> stream, so I'm going to be putting up two new streams on YouTube this week. Ooh, so there's going to be like three hours of of Jeff slow-paced game dev entertainment ready for you. <laughs> <Right>. Slow-paced. <laughs> I was going to say action-packed, but like I got to sell what what I got. That's right. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> no, hey, people like it. There's nothing wrong with slow-paced. It's going to be a lot of Jeff this week. This it is, is. Uh, Jeff cast, and then you got three hours of Jeff working on Unity. It's all Jeff all the time. Why? Much. Why am I even here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm here to edit the podcast. Ah, that's right. I knew I'm that. a I glorified intern. <laughs> <laughs> Curse you, Blair. You could uh, you could do your own streams, Matt. <clears throat> I could. I know. I know. Yeah, you could. Um, but you won't. I'll tell you what. No, I will. When the when the Kickstarter launches, I'm going to be streaming. A lot. Mm-hmm. A ridiculous amount. I've heard you that can, before. You can be a naysayer if you want to, sir. <laughs> in the meantime, all, like yesterday, I don't know, man. Yesterday probably would have been a really bad day to stream because I was animating all day. Um, that's actually why like, I was. I had your stream open, uh, but I, I, like, I, I tried listening to you a few different times, but like, I was so in the zone, and sometimes just like words and you know the cool stuff that you're doing, I find highly distracting. So I had to just kind of put on my like, my my. I don't know, focus goggles or something. And cause I was, I don't know. I was in the zone and uh, I was just animating and like, that's some tedious work. I can't imagine that would be fun for people to watch. Focus goggles. I, think I need to call blinders, Matt blinders. Okay. That'll work. <laughs> focus goggles. <laughs> I, I, I have it. this, uh, I actually have this printout on my wall from, uh, I'll put a link to this in the show notes if I can find it too. What is it called? Accurate drawing. Um, it's got me thinking about, uh, like things you wear on your head a lot. Hmm. And because it's got this, uh, it's basically this printout that kind of gives you these like high level things to think about when you're drawing. And then the analogy they use is you put these different glasses on your head and your glasses will be like, these are the alignments, these are the angles, the measurements, the implied lines and the creaturizing, which is kind of unique to this person's uh, tutorial or whatnot. But I really like that way of thinking. Like you put, you put something on your head and now you're thinking only in that way. It's almost like lenses. (laughs) <laughs> if you were to evaluate a game through a series of lenses a, a book of lenses if you will <laughs> yes yeah yeah it's pretty helpful i don't know like it's really difficult to think about just one thing when you're overwhelmed with all the hundreds of you know different things you got to think about when you're doing something involving yes. games it's overwhelming man so it anything you can do to help yourself yep i agree and uh you know 
that's actually why the little JS 13K thing has been so fun recently is because it's just this tiny, tiny focused thing yeah, uh, with not a lot of distraction. And it's really easy to make progress that way. So focus right. is key. Yes. So uh, you ready for my art tip? Am I? Are you ready? Are you on the edge of your seat? I, I'm slouching, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am today, too. I've been standing recently at my, uh, at my standing desk, but today's a sit day. I think it's a it's a squish my spine kind of day. You gotta compress it and decompress it. it yeah, awesome. exactly. Gotta relax Anyways, today. Yeah, I um, am uh, interested to hear your tip. So let's do it. Last week, uh, what, what am I rambling about? Sometimes I have a hard time kind of getting these thoughts out of my head. Sometimes, so uh, I know that they get really rambly. I was saying something about um, doing stuff like, let's say you do like fifty two point perspective uh, drills or something, right? And what I was trying to get at is that I will start off by drawing cubes, right? Or something simple like pyramids or whatnot. And then what I would notice is that sometimes I'd want to do these uh, these drills and I would get really overwhelmed because I would be like, this time I'm going to draw a cityscape or I'm going to draw a train track, like a train station or something. Anytime I think about something complex to study, I would get exhausted and not want to do it, right? But anytime I would think in simple terms, like I'm going to draw five cubes, I can handle that. I can do it right now. It's fun. I'll just bang them out. It's, it's easy, right? You do and it while key, you're podcasting, even. Hey, I'm able to try it here. I'm like, get set up. <sighs> no, that ain't happening. <laughs> I'm way too relaxed. Yeah. Um, but the key for me, I think, is this. Um, as long as I start simple, I will be good, right? Because, like, let's say I just draw three or five cubes. They're really boring when I'm done. It's not that interesting. But what you do is you come back and you add to them. You know, you turn that one cube into a train, right? Turn another cube into a car. Or then like, you can put stuff inside of the cubes. You can combine the cubes, put two cubes together and make a bus. You know what I mean? So like if I started off, like I'm going to draw a bus in a city, I'd be like, oh, that's a lot of stuff. How am I going to do this? But if I instead just draw a bunch of cubes and then I turn it into a city, that, that kind of like Lego building style, I find much more satisfying and I end up in a better place when I'm done. Does that make sense? Yes. And then you yeah. could turn that train into a train boss. Yes, and then I can suplex it. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> yeah, so that was last week. That was uh, set specific goals. And uh, this is number tip number five. I'm really uh, excited about this one because I think it, um, aside from the article I've talked before about uh, Paul Richards, who is just the artist to follow, in my opinion, uh, just based on like not just his skill and his talent, but like his ability to... Uh, like his insights like he writes these great talks and they're they're just they're so useful because they're so fundamental um so one of the i think part of this came from uh from him talking about filling sketchbooks that's what this point is fill sketchbooks Uh, another one was um jake parker who's another artist that i follow and he talks about filling sketchbooks as well and then there was another artist uh, i think it was noah bradley who we actually talked about on the podcast before but it was one of those episodes where the audio died out so i don't think that actually made it to the air um, but he was talking about when he was in art school, his uh, instructors were obsessed with filling sketchbooks. Hmm. And so when I first heard of this, I think it was from Jake Parker. I'll put a link to the, him in the show notes. And he was basically like, especially if you're not working as an artist, you should be filling sketchbooks. And uh, it's a really nice whole number. You should fill one sketchbook per month. Easy. Isn't that nice? There's something about that that's just very simple and pure to me. You know, as long as you're filling sketchbooks, you will be improving. Where, where last week had this kind of like, you know, set specific goals for yourself, like do, you know, do 50 perspective studies, do draw 100 perspective grids, whatever. Um, whereas that is like, <clears throat> the analogy I'm going to draw here is, 
World of Warcraft, you're going to do some quests, right? In filling sketchbooks, that's like uh, farming gold. Because like you can always use more gold in World of Warcraft, right? Even though, let's say you go to a town and you've completed all the quests and you feel pretty good about it. And you have to go to a new town to get new quests, whatever. You want to stay here for a while. You could get more gold all the time. You almost never don't need more gold, right? And that yeah. to me is what filling sketchbooks is all about. Because you don't have to sit down and be like, I'm going to learn this specific thing. You can just start to doodle if you want to. And what I do with my sketchbooks is I kind of use them for both. I will do some doodles just because it's fun. I will draw. I will do some specific studies to try to do deliberate practice. Um, all kinds of different things. And just having a sketchbook to me, I think, is um, motivating. It's kind of exciting. It's it's itchy. I will see a sketchbook sitting there with a pencil on top of it, and I'm like, ooh, like you just want to open it up and find a blank page and like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you just want to like scribble stuff down on it, you know. It's, and it's so accessible, right? Like you could just be in the mood to draw and you could pick up the pencil and the paper and you could just draw right away. You don't have to like boot up your PC or like get your tablet going or Exactly. Yeah. You cannot to me, you cannot beat the ease of just pencil and paper, you know? Like, oh, my computer needs to update or the power went out or my computer crashed or the software is not behaving. Or like here's an example. Um, I am terrified of updating to Windows ten. I just don't want to do it because I'm I'm really like my tablet's pretty old. I haven't been able to afford a new tablet in a long time, and uh, it, the drivers don't exist anymore from what I could find on Mac. One of the reasons I'm on Windows now, and I'm really worried that I will update to Windows 10, and it's like, hey, you can't use your tablet now, Matt. Good luck figuring that out, <laughs> yeah. you know. And like with pencil and paper, like you're never gonna have that. Have fun making art. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's see, I got a bunch of brain dump notes here. I'm going to go through them real quick. One of the things I like about it is that it's tangible. So I've drawn a lot of stuff on the computer. I've done a lot of stuff for Wizard Lizard 2, right? But it's hard to picture it sometimes, you know, except once in a while I make a screenshot with a bunch of really dense like game objects in there. But it's like when I don't do that specifically, I might not have any idea what kind of progress I've been making or how many drawings I've been doing, you know, and sketchbooks bring that into the real world. And like right here behind me. I've got my sketchbook and what I do when I get one is I will put the number of sketchbook it is on it. So right here's number five. I'm on sketchbook number five right now. And then I also put the date on it and I started this one on uh, August 6th. And let's see, this is a 70 sheet sketchbook and I am like three quarters of the way through it. And over on my shelf over there is the first four sketchbooks. And that's really cool because I have like this progress meter that's, real world you know it's not like hidden away on my computer it's not like in a tab somewhere it's like it's sitting there on my shelf yeah. i can see that i've been making progress and i know that like let's say someday i fill up 50 sketchbooks i'm gonna be a much better artist like right now i'm at five you know and i'm kind of learning and i'm slowly crawling along and stuff but like just having them exist in the real world i think makes a big difference it uh, kind of reminds me of that uh scene from seven where they go through <laughs> the crazy guy's apartment and he's got all these like reams of notebooks that oh are yeah filled with rambly craziness oh man that's such a good movie yeah it is i was talking uh, about that with the wife just the other day yeah it's uh it's one of my favorite movies it's really really good yeah anyways uh i think that's a really good tip actually i use sketchbooks myself um quite a bit uh when like doodling game design so i, nice. I don't like sketch stuff i kind of like just doodle game design stuff so a lot of times like uh, i used to do it a lot when i was like trying to wrap my head around like vector math or you know level design tile stuff like okay if i'm going to render this tile at such and such coordinates and i want to offset this by that you know it helps to kind of visualize that stuff and it's really easy just to get a piece of paper in a notebook and just kind of 
doodle around until the spatial concepts kind of make sense in your head. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, used to do that same kind of thing a lot, but I really like to use graph paper. And that is something I think that I've taken from like elementary school, probably. I remember, um, you know, you need to get these ruled notebooks in school and you'd be able to write on them and blah, blah, blah. Right. And uh, when teachers would let me use graph paper, I always thought graph paper was more fun because it's also got these vertical lines. And uh, it's just like it's very appealing to someone, especially if you love video games, because there's pixels and there's these points on this graph. And it's like, you know, you could make little maps like you like I'm sure before you've treated graph paper kind of like tiled map editor. Right. Yeah. Right, where you're basically just like you fill in a square and you're like, that's a solid. And you draw a little like a rectangle around one. You're like, that's open. You know, and all of a sudden you're making maps and it's so fun. Exactly. Yeah. It's a good way to just kind of like sketch out like level design or, you know, uh, understand spatial concepts, stuff like that. Yeah. And I used to do a lot of drawings on graph paper as well. And they're all like, none of them were good and none of them were keepers because they're on this paper that's just not good for drawing. You know, it's, it's covered with lines. You don't always want that. Um, and this is a point too, is I used to think of sketchbooks, especially, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, probably, but <clears throat> I used to think of sketchbooks as these like really pristine, expensive things that are only for real artists. And like anytime I'd use one or buy one, I just felt like a fraud and wasting money and paper and stuff, you know? And uh, I don't feel that way anymore. I think that it's really worth the investment. I think that the average sketchbook I buy is probably eight bucks. I mean, it depends on the quality and the uh, the amount of pages in it and that kind of thing. But, like, I really don't think it matters too much. I think, like, what I've been doing, actually, is I've been buying a bunch of different brands, a bunch of different sizes, just to kind of see. Like, so far, no two uh, sketchbooks that I've used have been uh, of the same type at all. Oh, and I think it's good just to try different things. I'm starting to kind of zero in on what's most convenient yeah. and whatnot. But uh, the point is that, like... It just treat it like garbage, like cheap, you know, like seriously, a sheet of paper, come on, like a sketchbook, like invest in yourself. You can take five or 10 bucks, buy some sketchbook and use it. You know, it's not, it's not this, uh, this thing that is, you know, that you're going to ruin with your lines. <laughs> We're actually talking like, you know, what, eight to $10 a month if you're filling up one sketchbook a month. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, money's different for everybody and maybe some people literally can't afford it. But uh, I, if that's the case, you know, just get a bunch of computer paper or like, you know, draw on napkins, like whatever. I just, I think that uh, that mentality I used to have where like I didn't want to spend on myself, you know, as, as an artist or just somebody who wanted to draw, uh, that's gone away. Like, I, th- I think it's worth the investment. If, if for no other reason, it's because you enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Um, so if you buy a 70-page sketchbook, mm-hmm. That's what, 140 pages front to back? Oh, I don't actually use the back even. Oh, you don't? Okay. I was going to say, so but that's maybe. like, even 70 pages, that's like uh, about two two plus pages a day of sketching. Right. Yeah. So the general rule of thumb, um, and this is, so Jake Parker, uh, what he mentioned is that um, when you're not already producing art, like as your full-time job, like that, that should be about your output and your amount of practice and whatnot. And what I've like, uh, what did I say? I've been doing this for almost a year ish, and so I'm like halfway there, I guess. But again, I've got a you know job <laughs> where I have to do art, so I'm kind of like trying to put the gas on both, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm probably at a rate of about one sketchbook every two months. Okay. Uh, but I think that that actually has uh, has been increasing a little bit because I'm getting more comfortable and I'm getting more excited about it and uh, and whatnot. But yeah, I think that it averages out to about. Um, two to three pages per day. And there'll be some day where I might crank out like 10 pages, you know, and there might be another day where I don't draw at all. So it's like... Wait, wait, but one of your tips was to draw every day. 
I, I do draw every day. Okay. <laughs> but I'm, you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> it's, it's an ebb and a flow, just like everything else, right? I'm just giving you crap. Yeah. Um, there's also something else that I think is uh, kind of along the same mind frame is like, okay, so say you don't like sketchbooks or you just, you're not excited by traditional media. Try to find some way to get the sketchbook effect, which is that you've got these things sitting on a shelf that you can bring you know, your, your art and your progress, especially into the real world, you know? So like, let's say you only like to work digi- digitally, right? You could start to print stuff out, you know, and collect it into a, a, like a sketchbook or a binder or something. Um, I think that would benefit a lot because like, you know, again, stuff on your computer can feel very hidden, you know, like you could look at a computer and it looks uninteresting and there could be 10,000 beautiful pieces of artwork in there and you don't know it. You can make right? a coffee table book. Yes. <laughs> out of your artwork. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so like, there's something about um, sketchbooks that really appeals to me and that gets me excited. And I think that that's something that like, if you can find that with your own work, you should latch onto. And something else that I think is kind of fun is like, I, I actually bought a different type of sketchbook recently. It's on toned paper. <clears throat> and so that's like this uh, kind of light gray. And the reason to do that is because when you start like this medium tone, you can go up and down in value, right? From like whites to blacks. And okay. so you can actually draw in your highlights and whatnot. When you're draw- when you're drawing on white paper, your only option really is to decrease the value. You know, like draw darker stuff on top of the white paper. And so if you want to like, if you wanted to start with a you know a toned paper, you'd have to just like put lead all over the whole <laughs> the whole page. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, how do you get the highlights? Do you have a white pencil or something? Yeah, use a white pencil. Okay. That's and cool. I think it's kind of fun just to kind of toss it up. Like it's not my standard. Um, but I think it's really fun. And what I wanted to try was like, you draw a sketch down. And what's kind of nice about that is when you're drawing with your pencil, the, uh, the tones, it, it's easier to stay light. And that's one thing you really want to do, especially when you're doing like an underdrawing is you want to keep your drawing pretty light. And then uh, when you want to darken stuff up, you can, you know, push harder with your pencil. But what I like to do is uh, I come back with ink sometimes just to kind of like practice that. And, uh, I, this is an, again from Jake Parker. He had these really cool pens. They're not just like, when you think of a pen, you think of like this metal tip, or something very rigid but he has these brush pens and a brush pen is just like a normal pen but at the tip it's kind of like what it sounds like it's it looks more like a brush it's very soft and it's like a feather huh. it gives way and um i really wanted to try it out it was like six maybe up to ten bucks on amazon or something and i just think that it's really fun and satisfying and i think that there's a lot to that because like sometimes like i'm not very good at inking i'm not even terrific at drawing you know but i really enjoy the process and that's what i've latched on to that's cool. Um, and that's really, like, really fun, especially with the toned paper, because I'll start off with this drawing, and it's very light. I come back over with the ink, and you can see the solid black on top of the gray, and then I might even come back with a white pencil and draw in some highlights. And then it looks uh, very dynamic and much more interesting than a lot of my drawings, which is just, you know, uh, gray or, or black lead on, you know, bleached white paper, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet that little bit of highlight adds so much depth to the drawing. It does. It really does. Yeah. And uh, I saw uh, James Kearney recently, I actually retweeted this, was talking about like um, doing your highlights last and keeping them kind of bunched together to like not spread the focus around the piece, but to keep it kind of zeroed in. So like you might just want to have highlights on the eyes or just around the head or wherever you want to, you know, draw the viewer's focus and whatnot. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so that's number five is to fill sketchbooks. And if filling sketchbooks isn't your thing, try to find some kind of similar thing, you know, something comparable. Like even if it's only digital, try to bring it into the real world or get yourself excited about it or find some way to make it uh, easily measurable. I like that. It's a good tip. Yeah. 
I'm excited about that one. I've I've always got a sketchbook or or two going. I've got a bunch of them these days, and uh, even when I don't know what I want to draw or what I want to practice, I can just sit down with the sketchbook, bang some stuff out, and I know that I'm uh, I'm mining. You know, I'm grinding. I'm I'm making <laughs> progress. I'm gaining gaining levels slowly. I guess grinding is an apt term, although grinding always has sort of a negative connotation. It but- can. I've talked about this before. I don't, I don't actually mind grinding in certain situations, you know, like if it's one of my favorite games or like just the, like, you know, a final fantasy game, like, um, final fantasy four for super Nintendo, you've got to do some grinding in that game. And I didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of fun. You know, it's fun to hear the battle music and see these cool monsters and kill them with elemental spells and all that stuff. And if I got to do that for a couple hours, it's, it's fun. These days I don't do that anymore. (laughs) But like back when I used to have a lot of time, like when I was a student and in high school and all that stuff, like, man, I, I thought it was great, you know? Really enjoyed yeah. it. Anywho, uh, do you have a Unity tip for us, sir? I do, actually. Ooh, I'm excited. Uh, this is actually a tip that I sort of roundabout got from, uh, again, Sam and Moose, who's one of our uh, stream followers. But it's a tip that he picked up from the stream, I think. From your stream? From my stream, yeah, that he said that uh, we should talk about. And that is to use... Uh, scenes debugging scenes to debug and develop your prefabs or your objects or game interactions so one thing that i do in unity is i create we actually have a whole bunch of debug scenes um so there's like basically one scene that's the actual game and then there's a whole bunch of other scenes that are like i have one called jeff there's one called matt there's one called debug there's one called stage and i use them for different things and so um the debugging scene i kind of use for just a very singular one game entity at a time. Um, but you can really use it however you want. The the basic gist is that uh, you want to isolate things, and this is actually kind of a kind of a broad tip uh, with just problem solving or any kind of work in general. Is that you want to break it down, and when you can isolate stuff and work on an isolation, it helps you focus, and it gets those distractions out of your way, and it increases uh, your ability to iterate uh, because you know. When I'm in the main game scene, there's all this setup. It's like the game starts and the player spawns and it fades in and the text comes up and you're in a level that's precisely generated and you might not know where certain things are or whatever. Um, but in a very focused debug scene, you could just start it up. You've got the player, you've got the object, you can interact with it, you can change the properties on the fly. It's really easy uh, to do that kind of stuff. So uh, nice. that is today's tip. I think it's number three, two, seven. I don't know. <laughs> that kind of came from uh, a wizard's lizard too we have it's called a debug scene yes specifically and it was always really nice uh because you could go in there and do whatever you want we had this setup where you could any room so like the, you know there's this generator with hundreds of different types of rooms probably and uh it could be like i want to see the spider boss room or i want this treasure room or whatever uh, or you could just have an empty room and put exactly what you want in there and nothing else it was uh, like this perfect little area where like, like a playground, you know, you knew you weren't going to break anything and you can experiment with just this nice little slice of your game in isolation. Right. So yeah, that is uh, is very helpful for development to just, you know, isolate and focus on the thing that you're working on. Uh, it helps quite a bit. Nice. That's a good tip. Yeah. I think it's interesting that when we went from AWL 1 to AWL 2, the, the scene like the debug scene thing that we had going we just uh we increased it even at first because we started with just the one debug scene and then i think like there was like one conflict or something or you're both doing something on it 
and then you had a Jeff scene, and I had a Matt scene, and like problem solved, and like there's no reason you couldn't have 15 different scenes. Yeah, they're all really. just debug scenes to help you out. And I have some that are kind of in between. Like I have another scene called stage, and that is like a kind of a halfway between the actual game and a minimalist debug scene where it's got like the level gets generated, but it's a static level. And so it's also got objects that get spawned into the world. Yeah. Um, but again, they're very static. And so I can create a very specific scene for like shooting video or like testing out a specific scenario or something. Nice. Yeah. So, that's a good tip. Yeah, I like thanks. it. So evaluating game mechanics for depth. Ooh. Yeah. It's the article we mentioned in the last episode right near the end. And uh, it's a pretty overwhelming article. It's it's kind of, it's pretty deep, you know? It's uh, it's hard to understand. It's got a lot going on. And uh, I thought it was called something like meaningful skill. I like the introduction of that term, though. Meaningful, meaningful skills skill. is one of the terms that it introduces. But I'll kind of start at the beginning a little bit. Okay. Um, the basic gist of the article is that... Um, it's talking about how you can evaluate the game mechanics in your game for their depth. And the way that they describe depth is um, the ways in which the player, you know, can overcome obstacles in your game using the skills and mechanics that you've given them. Right. And so there's a couple or a few different terms, right? There's the term mechanics, uh, which a lot of people are probably familiar with, but um, also tends to be very broad. Um, but it can kind of come down to just the things in the game that the player can do. So like um, one thing that I, I like to do with these kinds of articles is I like to read them a couple times and then I take them and I try to look at our game and, you know, make analogs to each of the points that they're making. Yeah. So like in AWL2, what would the mechanics be? And so it would be like moving is a mechanic. Right. Uh the tongue is a mechanic um, and a platform or jumping would be a mechanic. So in the article here, he says, when I say game mechanic, I'm referring to any major chunk of gameplay in a video game. And uh, he uses uh, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past as an example. And here there's like sword combat, block pushing, boomerang throwing, swimming, button based puzzles, hazard avoidance, specific weapons, all that good stuff. I think that's pretty broad though. Um, it is. Yeah. You know, any when you, when you say things like any portion of gameplay or whatever, it's doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. I like to kind of boil it down to something more like actions the player can take. Right. I mean, Verbs. game mechanics is like a huge umbrella term, but um, you could also just kind of think about the base as what can the player do to interact with the world. Yeah. You can collide with things. You can move your guy from A to B. You can swing your sword. Uh, you can like pick up a pot and throw it or whatever. So those kinds of things. Um, then you also have um, challenges or objectives. And these are the things in your game that you want the player to do. And you need to make them simple and obvious. So again, like the, the example that they give is Legend of Zelda. Like here's a big door that requires the boss key. It's very ornate. And, you know, it's very clearly messaged that... Uh, in order to get through here, you need some kind of a special key. Right. And so that's the challenge, the obstacle that you want the player to solve. Um, that's, that's really the challenge. And the obstacles are like other things in their way. Right. So you have this challenge, you have obstacles, and then the player has mechanics uh, through which they can overcome these obstacles. And um, 
in order to evaluate your game for depth, he's talking about uh, what he calls meaningful skills. And I really like this term because it kind of puts a lot of weight on uh, the fact that they are they need to be meaningful. And meaningful in the sense that like they can't just be trivial. So like a trivial skill would be walk across this room. Right. And a, a trivial skill could even be push a button. You know, walk over to this wall and push a button. Um, if there are no hazards in your way or ways in which you can die or there's no complication around how you get from A to B, then it's not a meaningful skill. A meaningful skill is something that would have to demonstrate mastery of a game mechanic. Right. So, it needs to be like the player demonstrating skill or knowledge, right? Like expertise right. in some way, not just like, are you a human being that has a finger that can push the left button? <laughs> Do you Good have a job. <laughs> you win. <laughs> there needs like the more meat on that bone, right? Like you, know, you need to know more about the game systems. You need to understand like your current scenario you, that you're in or like with something like, a, you know, a really tight side-scoring platformer, like you're really good at mastering the controls, something along those lines. Right. And so like, you know, for example, a game like Splunky, if it uh, was something like, you know, run from left to right, that's not a meaningful skill. Yeah. But when you start to get in, okay, like run from left to right, but you can't, you know, you have to jump over this gap and you can't fall in because you take damage when you fall and you can't get hit by these spikes when you're jumping, uh, you know, that, and then it starts to become a meaningful skill because dodging hazards is a meaningful skill and, you know, uh, mastering the jump, gravity, and distance is a meaningful skill. Did you see the new Spelunky world record today? I, I don't know. I, I saw one recently that was like under two minutes for yeah. a complete run. It was something crazy. This one's one minute, 41 seconds. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm even out of the jungle vast majority of the time under yeah. two minutes. That's, that's crazy. That's yeah. <laughs> Good grief. Um, but yeah, so it was Lizard 2 a meaningful skill would be like showing mastery of the tongue mechanic. And so a non-meaningful skill would be, you know, pick up this rock with your tongue. That's not meaningful at all. And so it actually kind of changed the way I was thinking about some of these mechanics, you know, Um, because like a simplistic puzzle, like pick up this rock and put it on a button and then it opens a door. That's not really demonstrating any meaningful skills. Yeah. It's like, okay, you can take all the time in the world you want to walk over to the rock. You press the tongue button, it puts it in your mouth, you walk over to the button, and you drop it. There's no mastery demonstrated there at all. I feel like a good test would be if you told somebody what you did and they were either impressed or they wondered how you did it. You know? If you're like, dude, I walked left. I went all (laughs) the way over there. And you're like... Did you now? You really, like, you went to the left, huh? But if you're like, you know, I beat Splunky in under two minutes, you're like, what? How? How do you do that? That's impressive, right? Like, that's meaningful. So, like, in AWO2, I started listing out what I thought would be meaningful skills. And so, a meaningful skill would be, like, uh, using your tongue to grab an item that is moving. Because it shows mastery of the timing of the tongue and the timing of the thing moving. Yeah, So, like, let's say that there was a... Uh, you know, like a little ball bouncing back and forth across the screen, you know, and you had to time your tongue such that you would grab it out of the air. And that's not super uh, complicated, but it does show, you know, the basic uh, mastery of those systems. Yeah. Uh, because there is a time window in which you have to perform uh, that skill. 
And if you don't, there's a fail state, right? Yeah. And uh, without that, it's almost, there is no fail state. <laughs> pretty right. Much. So you I, failed I th- to walk left. Right. Yeah, yeah. You failed to press any button whatsoever. <laughs> you lose. So I think that's part of it. Meaningful skills, you know, they need to demonstrate mastery and understanding of the game systems and mechanics. Uh, and they need to have, like, clear f- success and fail states. Um, and so you can kind of go through and you can list all the different things. Um, and so they can get even more complicated, right? With the tongue, it could be you have to grab something out of the air and time it, or you have to pick something up and you have to shoot a target that's a time-based thing. You know, you can have like a little, like a target that's moving back and forth. And once you put something in your mouth and you spit it out, that's another uh, meaningful skill. You have to master the time and velocity and the distance and the motion of the object you're trying to hit with your spit, right? Um, also, you know, you can actually turn A to B into a meaningful skill by, you know, adding things like moving platforms or traps, you know, like it's a meaningful skill to navigate a room, uh, when there are like spike traps trying to kill you. (laughs) Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Or dodging arrow traps or, or whatever they happen to be. So I guess that's the thing, right? Like you just need to make sure that the obstacles you're giving the player require meaningful skills to overcome. And so the last term that he introduces is something called action statements. And this is something that he uses to kind of uh, figure out what the challenges are going to be and how how much depth they have, right? And so, for example, you know, an action statement would be something very specific. It's a very specific application of a meaningful skill towards a specific obstacle. Um, and so it would be something like the lines of, okay... You have this door that has a lock and there's a key uh, behind, you know, some other section of the room and you need to uh, use your tongue to grab something out of the air and you need to spit it across the room, across a pit to hit a moving target that then unlocks a cage that allows you to get to the key to take it to the door. And so each of those small things is like an action statement. So it would be like, you know, an action statement would be use your tongue to grab a flying ball out of the air. That's an action statement that uses a meaningful skill. Nice. And so you can chain those things together to create, you know, deep uh, interactions. Like do this step, then do that step and this step. And that's kind of like a puzzle mechanic. Um, And so a lot of the examples he's using are things like, uh, I think he was working on Ratchet and Clank. And a lot of his examples revolve around the kind of, you know, action puzzles that he was making for that game. Right. Um, And so those particular things might not be applicable to what we're doing or what someone else is doing. But I think the basic idea kind of works, you know, in like a different game, let's say Dark Souls, um, a meaningful skill might be like circle strafing around an enemy uh to you know, wait for their attack opening, and then use the proper attack to counterattack against them when they're vulnerable. Yeah, right. And then so it could be that that is a that is a challenge, right? The challenge is uh, get from A to B, and the obstacles in your way are, you know, uh, a spear knight and a guy with a big axe, and you know whatever else. And you have to use your meaningful skills to overcome those obstacles. So anyways, I think it's it's a really interesting way to kind of talk about your game, talk about the mechanics, and it kind of opened my eyes a little bit to 
really trying to take a critical look at the application of mechanics and to make sure that you're not just putting these trivial mechanics in the game. Yeah. You know, like you want the player to have to demonstrate mastery of the systems. And, you know, it's an easy thing to kind of like, oh, it's obvious, right? Like you want your game to be challenging and rewarding. But what does that actually mean? How do you actually uh, execute on making your game challenging and rewarding? Yeah, having definitions for these terms, even having the terms at all, you know, like an activity statement. Oh, man, that is a third action statement. <laughs> activity <laughs> statement, yes, that's yeah. useful. You know, having a meaning or a definition for, for depth and mechanics and like, I don't know, just the more that we understand what we're trying to accomplish, the better the end result will be, right? Right. I really admire that uh, this author has no problem going back to his own work and criticizing it. And that's that's something that I like a lot. It's almost like a, a mini postmortem in that regard, where it's like, you know, I understand why I made these decisions and here's why I made them and blah, blah, blah. Here's why they're not great. And this is super good. Here's what how I do it differently today. Right. You know, like, here's how far I've come. Here's what I've learned in the process. And like, you know, obviously this is also some ways that you could benefit uh, in your own work. Another uh, interesting point he makes is about thematics uh, around stuff. And so, for example, you know, he, I think in, in one of his scenarios, he ended up with uh, a puzzle which the mechanics were all the same, but they were themed differently. Yeah, they he used this term theatrics. Yeah. Which I thought was really helpful because it was like, let's say the, the activity statement is push this block from A to B. Right. Okay. That's fine. And then because he was saying like, because he was inexperienced at the time, didn't really know what he was doing that well. His next step was, okay, it's not just a block that you're pushing now. It's a robot and it's a funny, wacky robot. And that's great. Like it, it, it does, you know, feel better. It seems better. It's not any deeper. It's just more theatrical, which right. I mean, sometimes that's enough. You know, you do want theatrics in your game. That's kind of what polish and juice and squishiness and all of the like, you want your game to be vibrant and alive. And like, that can be good and it's better than, you know, nothing. But like, you know, you want to push a block and another block, or you're going to push a block and a wacky robot. And it's like, you want to push the walk, rock and the wacky robot, right? But you're also hoping for deeper game mechanics. Right. You can't use theatrics or thematics as a replacement for like meaningful skills. Right, like if you're doing that, you may as well just watch a movie, right? Because that's like all they are. Like go to the theater, theatrics. <laughs> but if it's a game, like you want to have more interesting interactions with the player, you know? I think that's where it helps to break down the meaningful skills because then you can kind of see where you're reusing a meaningful skill, right? Like yeah. if your entire puzzle revolves around one meaningful skill, then it's probably, shallow. yeah, it's it's a little like shallow, right? Yeah, that's what, something we've been talking about with uh, AWL2 is that uh, we want to provide multiple ways to solve problems. You know, like we don't want the tongue to be this magic bullet. Like, yeah, just use your tongue for everything. It's fine. Like maybe it is and maybe it's great in a lot of different scenarios, but we also want to provide different avenues. Maybe there's like a magic spell you could cast instead. Maybe there's like there's something more optimal in the situation than the tongue itself. Maybe the tongue can't be used in this scenario. You know, we kind of want to have a, I think the term used uh, is breadth. Like sure. there's there's the deep and then there's like the wide. Right. You want to give players I mean there there's several ways to do it, right? I mean there there are games where there is a right way to do it, you know? Yeah. It's like this is a puzzle platformer and here is the way that this puzzle is completed. Yeah. Um but it always is nice when there are multiple ways to get something done because then it makes the player feel 
like they have agency and they're not just running through a scripted event and that there's actually choice, you know? Yeah. Um, one thing that's tough and, and that we're going to have to make sure we balance well is like the th- stuff that's kind of um, infinite, right? Like the tongue is something that we don't really have a resource around it, right? Like you can just use your tongue whenever you want. <laughs> and so, you know, if that is part of the solution to a problem and there's another choice, the other choices have to have benefits, you know? Yeah. Like in order for the choice to be meaningful, the player has to, you know, feel like there's meaning behind the choice. Like there's a pro and a con to using one method or the other. Right. So anyways, uh, it's all really interesting stuff. Um, again, I'm not going to pretend that I am, uh, you know, completely understanding all the points that guy is making, but I do feel like, uh, at the very least, that article opened my eyes to uh, being able to look at and uh, pick apart the pieces of your game's challenging aspects and then the way you're using mechanics uh, to evaluate them. So that's good. Yeah. Articles by Mike Stout. And I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. Yep. Um, another piece of news, actually. Uh, we have a brand new logo. Ooh, logo. Yeah. So uh, I was bugging you about it because, I don't know. That's what you do. That's what I do. I I bother you. (laughs) You like to bug me. Uh, We've been talking about it for a little while, but recently it's just been, you know, it's one of those things where I see our logo all the time, honestly, because, you know, we're doing stuff. (laughs) You can't get away from it. I really can't. And so it's just, it kind of like drives into your brain. Like every time I saw it the last week, I was just, I hated it more and more and I wanted it to go away. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like uh, you know a pile of boxes in the corner that you're like, yeah, I gotta unpack those or something like that. It's like a a to do list that's manifested in your face, right? And like so for a while, it just kind of builds and you tolerate it, and you're like, oh, I really gotta do something about that. And then one day you just hit your breaking point, and you're like, I'm gonna get rid of these boxes. Yes, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, so I was like, you know, Matt, please do logo (laughs) let's make this happen so we've talked before about the logo uh the original logo but i made that back in 2010 that was like one of the first things i ever drew on uh my shiny new at the time uh tablet and it turned out surprisingly well given my inexperience at the time but it is this like a giant raster image it's not suitable to to icons or to vector graphics it's not simple it does not scale down well at all it uh like i look at it now and i just see all these issues like the gray of the axe uh blade bleeds into the gray of the uh uh sundial and it's there's a lot of a lot to not like about it but there were some things that we liked is one is it looks very medieval fantasy which is kind of our bread and butter it's on a sundial and the shadow of the axe handle points at 10 so it's got the like the time element and the decade element um it doesn't really have any kind of a lost element which is not great and so the new logo is a skull facing to the left uh, kind of an angle and it's got an x on its forehead and it seems simple enough but we do have reasons for all the things that we decided for one we started off with like this matrix where we would do like what if it was um, crossed swords that formed an x for you know decade x for 10 roman numerals right and right. we'd have another one where it's like okay here's some different types of skulls like we, we tried a bunch of different uh, just rough sketches uh, and that's how we zeroed in on the one that we're currently at. So we didn't just like, you know, bang out a skull. We actually spent some time iterating and whatnot. And so the uh, the X symbolizes uh, the decade. 
the skull doesn't just symbolize the time, but also the loss. You can't have a skull without the loss of life, right? So you've got lost decade there. So the name is actually is in the whole logo. Um, and then something I picked up again from Paul Richards, a uh, fantastic uh, uh, ad hoc educator. Um, he was talking recently um, on his Patreon, which I should put a link to in the show notes, about um, pieces having kind of an intro and an outro. And so what that would mean is like there's a plate when you look at any image, there's a place where your eyes are likely to start and there's a place where your eyes are likely to stop, right? And so your eyes, when they come into the logo, they should start at the face, like the human eyes very drawn to other human eyes or things that were once human, just eyes in general, right? Uh, it could be animals, it could be creatures, whatever. But like you, you, your eyes are drawn to the eyes in the logo and then they exit on the right side. There's this little divot that represents like a, um, I don't know what that would be, somewhere around the ears or something. Um, but it it's hopefully makes the piece, although very simple that it is, uh, feel kind of cohesive. Mm. Anyway, yeah. there's a lot of thought put into it. it. I know it's just a simple skull and it's just some pixels and it looks very very basic. But uh, we we do put a lot of thought into this stuff. And like you know, the logo represents your company, especially a company that we've spent the last like four years of our five four and a half years of our lives on. Uh, we care deeply about, and so we do not take this stuff lightly. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, in this case, simple is better. You know, it's a brand. It needs to be recognizable. It needs to be iconic. Yeah. It needs to be unique. Um, it needs to have a little bit of meaning. Right. And so I think that uh, the new logo hits a lot of those points. And we've actually been getting some pretty good feedback. Most people that have uh, noticed it have said good things about it. So yeah, good stuff. Thanks for that. I think that's good. It's a good validation. Step. Yeah. Uh, next, I want to make it into a vector because uh, although I do use Manga Studio, Clip Studio Paint, whatever in the world this thing's called, uh, it works. I can work in vectors, but I cannot export, which is kind of weak sauce. But what are you going to do, right? And uh, so I'm going to redo it in something else and we'll have a nice little vector image and it'll scale. We can make it like a 100 feet by 100 feet. We can print it out. Wow. Could like make wallpaper it... our house in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our wives would love that. My wife actually was talking about she wants a new car, and we were like, "Man, what about those um, those things where you like you brand them? Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. you seen those where people like they'll have like a Coke car, Pepsi car, or something, and it's just like covered, and you're like you you wonder, did they get that at a discount? You know, like that's a new Prius. <laughs> so like, <laughs> hey, you can buy a brand new Prius for yeah, it only like 10k if as long as you get it. You know, you you be it turns into a walking billboard, right? Man, was like, if uh, that was the case, I would have to have it for free. <laughs> that's the only way i would drive a coke branded car is if they gave it to me completely free yeah i don't know what the scenario is i would imagine they at least pay for putting it on and then maybe you get like uh i don't know you probably get monthly payments or something it's probably pretty cheap honestly and i would imagine it's based on like how much you drive and whatnot but tell you what i'd love a lost decade car <laughs> if you think about it though like how much does a prius cost let's say it costs thirty thousand dollars yeah i think it's about 30k new yeah uh, that is a drop in the bucket for an advertisement that someone's going to be driving around for you all day, every day. It's true. It might be a great, you know, value uh, proposition for the advertiser. I'm sure it must be. Yeah. And some people like that, especially if your job is to drive, if you're like in delivery or you're making house calls or you just have to commute a lot or whatnot, like your car is going to spend like hours every day on the road. And that's like money in the bank for, for yeah, some advertisers. Imagine somebody that commutes from like, say San Jose to San Francisco every day. On the 101. Right. Yeah, you exactly. you got this billboard that's seen by thousands of people. So all we need is a super fan who wants to deck his or her car out <laughs> with a wizard <laughs> lizard or Lost Decade stylings, and we will be 
We'll be good to go. Because we totally have $30,000 <laughs> plus to drop on a Prius and then brand it with LDG logos. No, this needs to be fan funded. I, oh, okay. I, we're going to Kickstarter. I think fans know we don't have our own funding. <laughs> we need fan funding. We're going to crowdfund an advertisement that a fan is going to drive around. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. That'll work. You're a marketing genius. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's all we have for this week. So uh, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out on the forum, forum.losttickagames.com. Please fill out the survey. It really helps us out, and it gives you an opportunity to uh, let us know your thoughts, and uh, we'll read some of that stuff live on the show in probably about two weeks. Uh, We also really appreciate comments. We do get some nice forum posts, and I really appreciate that. I haven't had any comments actually on the blog in quite a while. Love to hear your thoughts and uh, what you think about the show, what you want to hear about. That's a big one, too. Uh, And today we're going to play you out with Bounce by Joshua Morse. Ship it.
I had too much coffee this morning. I'm sorry. Oh, apologize in advance.